0: This is Maureen Milliken and this is Rebecca Milliken and this is Crime and Stuff. A podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. Right? And we have a special very special guest. <laughs> yes, we have a guest host. Our sister Liz, yes, and uh, some of you may remember Liz from
1: last year about this time. Last year Liz did what has turned out to be our most popular ever episode, the Chiron Horman episode, whose number we can't remember
2: right now. Do you have I, an, an update on Kyron, Liz? Um, not a real update. The 8th anniversary of his disappearance was this past June, and his biological mother, Desiree Young, on her Facebook, had this announcement that something big was coming and to keep tuned in. And as far as I can tell, no major news transpired after that. So mm. it was a little bit of a, whether it was wishful thinking on her part or what, yeah. you know, it, yeah, nothing happened. The stepmother, who we all kind of, have under a, yes. a bit of a cloud of suspicion, um, Terry Moulton got married a few months ago in Nevada. i for her. I wonder if she has any
0: stepchildren.
2: Well, I hope not. And
0: that was episode 30, in oh. case you want to listen. Okay.
1: I think we always say episode 30 when we don't know. <laughs> it was. I looked it okay. up. It I up. should have so checked 30. my phone. Do you have any updates, Becky? No. I don't need, Oh, I kind of have one. Todd Colehep. Ugh from episode two Two. has apparently indicated that, and you can go back, his South Carolina serial killer episode two has indicated he may have killed two more before he killed the four people at the motorcycle shop.
0: Ah.
1: And I haven't seen anything more about it. They're looking into it. And you know how serial killers do once they're in prison for the rest of their lives, they like to throw out little tidbits yes. once in a while. They like to
0: keep. It seems like they like to keep in the public eye. They like to keep having attention. They have, probably get tired of boring way.
1: in prison. But Liz has another organ. Organ related, I yes. would say it's not because not she's
0: here good. from. Oregon. Yes. Portland, Oregon. Portland, where she said. The, at, other, Portland. Where the other Portland. We're in Maine Portland, Maine right now. And in if our there's our some, ba- house.
1: right. If there's some background noise, it's cause we're recording at our, in the guest bedroom at our parents' house. And. <laughs> With
2: Congress Street right in Portland. Over, and you, and 10 a, feet
1: away. So anyway, Liz.
2: Well, my case that I'm going to talk about today is a very, maybe remotely, possibly an accident were increasingly, um, almost certainly, a crime. <clears throat> and if it's a crime, there are a number of big questions. How did a seemingly loving family, well-known, showing up at music festivals and political rallies, how did such a family devolve into an act of family annihilation, um, possibly? How was a family where parents were investigated for serious child abuse charges over three states allowed to in the words of one of the child caseworkers, fall through the cracks. to such a tragic end. In case you're wondering what case I'm talking about, this is the summary in a late April summation in the Oregonian, my local newspaper. A 15-year-old boy featured in a widely shared photo of him hugging a Portland police officer in 2014 is one of two children still missing after an SUV with their family inside plunged off a Northern California cliff. Devante Hart and his sister Hannah 16 have yet to be found since the wreckage was discovered March 26 by a passerby off Route 1 near Westport, California. The crash killed Jennifer Hart and Sarah Hart, both 38, and their children Marcus Hart, 19, Abigail Hart, 14, Jeremiah Hart, 14, and Sierra Hart, 12. I'm going to start with a kind of synopsis of the investigation of this really horrible occurrence. Then I'm going to look at the history of this family leading up to the tragedy. Uh, By the end, I'm going to consider some larger issues, including adoption policy, the lack of oversight over uh, adoption in this country and in various states, and the phenomenon of family annihilation. Mm, Um, Wow. Another thing that may be relevant is how white middle class adoptive parents are treated compared to African American biological parents. Oh, I
1: can't believe there would be a difference.
2: I know, it's very hard to believe, but... Uh. This case really kind of brings forward some, some big issues. The first news reports of what seemingly at first seemed to be an accident on March 26, 2018, a passerby along Highway 1 in Westport, California, calls 911 after looking down a 100-foot embankment and seen an SUV upside down on the rocky shoreline. Five people are found dead. The two adult women are inside, and three children outside the van. Mm.
1: Hey, raise your hand if when you first read about it, you said that wasn't an accident. Uh, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me, me too. I yeah. know. Yeah. It, it just
2: mm-hmm. didn't seem, although we have driven along that coastline. This is the Mendocino Oh, yeah. Coast. yeah. yeah. And I'm it is conscious. it is that kind of hairy yeah. drive. There are not like lots of guardrails. There's yeah. plunging cliffs. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I was going to say, our first episode, the Yoga Twins. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, you know, but I immediately thought it was probably something more. By March 28th, the women are identified as Jennifer and Sarah Hart, and their children as Marcus, Jeremiah, and Abigail. Three of the other children, Devante, Hannah, and Sierra, remain missing. At that point, the sheriff, Tom Allman, is not willing to say anything other than it's a continuing investigation, and they're looking for the remaining three children. By March 29th, the search for the three children continues, and they are looking into why the SUV plunged off the cliff. The authorities don't know for sure that the missing children were in the car, but they are were acting on the assumption that they were. On March 31st, the officials revealed the speedometer on the Hearts work SUV was, as they say, pinned, at 90 miles per hour as it went off the cliff. So this is the first indication that almost certainly this was was not. By April 2nd, officials say the crash may have been intentional, saying data taken from the family's SUV uh, shows the vehicle came to a complete stop at the Route 1 pullout before speeding off the cliff. The search for missing children becomes a, in quotes, recovery effort. Mm. And that day, Sheriff Tom Allman, Mendocino County Sheriff, says, I'm to the point where I'm no longer calling this an accident. I'm calling it a crime. And one of the other things too is that there were no skid marks that Mm -hmm. would be, you would have if it just sort of careened off accidentally careened oh. off the road right so no one put uh, the brakes on yeah and then there were no sign of brakes being up april 13th california highway patrol officials tell reporters that jennifer hart had a blood alcohol level of 0.102 Ooh. which is well well above the legal and i think the legal limit is point zero eight. yeah uh yeah. and yeah, yeah so In she was minutes, she everywhere. was thoroughly oh, intoxicated when she drove The SUV off the cliff, Captain Bruce Carpenter, also told reporters, toxicology reports indicated that Sarah Hart, the other adult female, had a significant amount of the ingredient primarily in Benadryl in her system. Two mm. of the three children also had Benadryl type of substances in their system, and you may know that Benadryl that's an antihistamine used for allergies is also a sleep aid. I mean, it makes you sleepy. Very drowsy. And some people take it as a sleep aid, yeah. and it the indication was that the amount of the substance in their system was more than what you would be taking if you were just taking it for allergies. So there's the suspicion that either knowingly or unknowingly, they were drugged to make them sleepy and, and you know, compliant and compliant mm-hmm. or uh, or Or unaware unaware oblivious. Unaware. April seventeenth, twenty eighteen, authorities announced that a body found in the Pacific Ocean surf near the crash site April seventh belongs to Sahara Hart twelve. Two of her siblings, Devonte and Hannah Hart, remain missing. They are presumed dead. One of the last sort of updates on this, I'll mention it now, is that May tenth or so, they uh, I think it washed up in the surf or something. Um, someone on that coast found the clothing of a young female, including jeans and a shoe, and they found the rather skeletal remains of a foot in that mm. shoe. Oh yeah, that they did. A lot. They yeah. suspect it may be the remains of Hannah. You yeah, because Hannah and Devante are the only ones who have not been definitively found yet. Apparently, it was inconclusive DNA testing, and they're trying to find blood relatives. Of Hannah, who can. Because she was adopted. She was adopted. They all, all children, the children were adopted. So I'll mention that right up front. All these children were adopted. They were all African American. Jennifer and Sarah, the mothers, were white uh, women from the Dakotas. And I'll get into the whole adoption, how this happened and how they were adopted. In 2004, is the earliest known public record that shows Jennifer Hart and then, as she was called, Sarah Gengler, both from South Dakota, residing in Alexandria, Minnesota. They had met in college. Their educational backgrounds were they had both majored in ed- education, Jennifer mm. apparently, in elementary education. Jennifer apparently never graduated. And Sarah graduated with a degree in elementary education, Neither women made any, had there's any record of them ever pursuing a job or career in the education field. Jennifer usually did not work outside the home, especially once they had the children. Sarah is the one who worked pretty much, and she mainly basically worked in retail through their entire history. Was Jennifer
1: the one with the degree
2: No, Sarah was Sarah. Um, Jennifer also was the one who uh, was the primary caregiver of the children. By April of 2005, the couple was licensed to provide child foster care in Douglas County. They also, by the way, at some point, I believe, did get legally married. They said in Connecticut. I found an interesting account in a, I think it was actually a Washington State newspaper of living with them from one of their former foster children. Mm. I, I couldn't find anything specific. Various people said that their Things didn't go too well with their foster children, but I only found specifics Mm -hmm. on this one. And she was a 15-year-old high school student who was really having trouble at home. She voluntarily went into foster care. She lived with them for probably well over a year, she thinks. She said things were great the first six months. She did say Jennifer. Jennifer. Was the one who was the more sort of dominant person in the relationship and was the one who was moody. She said that a couple things happened. One of them was that they went to a Green Bay Packers game. Jennifer apparently was a huge fan. They each brought footballs to get signed. Where were they living? And they were in the Minnesota. Oh, okay. this is a Minnesota. Right. Okay. And they were went to get footballs signed. And uh, some of the players came out. I They said the name. I don't remember the name. Yeah, what so a fair. famous, you know, big Brett football player.
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, But
2: anyways, he was a big deal. They approached him, and he chose the young teenagers football to sign. Apparently, Jennifer Hart was absolutely bullshit about it. <laughs> you know? Oh, my and God. And apparently just called her a brat. Said that she was acting like a brat and refused to speak to her for days.
0: Wow. So Whoa. she said there
2: were things like that that would happen where Jennifer would get really, really angry over really inconsequential things. And so they were talking about adopting three young children and they were talking it to her about how, what a great big sister she would. And they were all excited. They took her to a therapy session. She went to the therapy session and the therapist said, I'm sorry, but your foster parents don't think it's a good fit anymore. So after this session, you're going with another foster family. Wow. So wow. they, like, kind of. They basically dumped her. They the,
1: So and, so they told her she was going to the therapy session for one reason, but it was it, really to dump her. Right. And I think wow. it was a
2: routine. I think it was a routine. It, you know, Here. that was my. Yeah, they'd yeah. probably go. Yeah. And go. they had basically been stringing her along, saying that she was going to be part of this family. You know, when they got these three young children, she would be part of this family and they more or less just dumped her at the therapist and she never wow. saw them again
0: that's wow.
2: horrible. yeah and so there's one other thing that's disturbing and she found out about this later they had told whether it was the foster care people or whatever maybe because they were questioned about why they just sort of dumped this girl that she had had all kinds of behavior problems including and this is going to be relevant later um that she would hunt through the garbage cans looking for food and you know kind they of,
1: told this to the authorities to, to the
2: authorities yeah. and she didn't know about this till I think maybe the crime and she was reading Probably. about it and reading about these accounts and she was flabbergasted she said she never did anything like that and at that point they were all eating properly and she doesn't know why she's mystified as to why they would say that Mm. and um so i have some theories about the but it's a little foreshadowing of things to come so in 2000 by this time sarah hart is calling herself hart she's changed her name it doesn't mention in my oregonian timeline that i'm kind of working off of here that they got married but i have read in other sources that they did get married in uh, august of 2006 a harris county district court in texas judge orders the parental rights of the biological parents of Devante, jeremiah and sierra to be terminated there are six children who are adopted three parents. two sibling groups okay. three each oh, okay. so there are three kids from one biological family three kids so, from so another. so
1: the three harris county kids are all siblings okay. right right
2: okay so that's happening in texas in the meantime jennifer and sarah hart adopt in 2006 adopt Again, three siblings, Marcus, Abigail, and Hannah. I don't know anything about their prior adoptive or foster care, or but I, I'm i going to be telling you quite a bit about Devante and Sierra and Jeremiah. So they have adopted by September 2006, three siblings who were quite young at the time. And in the meantime, there's a whole thing going on with Devante and Jeremiah and Sierra. Um, and as you'll see, they're placed in foster care, and I'll tell you more about what happens to them before they end up being adopted by Jennifer and Sarah. So I'm going to talk of later about the biological family of Devante, Sarah, and Jeremiah and how they lost custody of the children because uh, they contested it and they fought very hard to keep those children. And um, her parents did? Yeah. Uh-huh. They, not a parent, an aunt. So in September of 2008, according to a police report from Alexandria, Minnesota, Hannah, then six, tells authorities that one of her mothers bruised her with a belt, asked about the beating, Jennifer and Sarah Hart tell a police investigator and social worker that the girl had fallen down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2009, Jennifer and Sarah adopt Devante, Sierra, and Jeremiah. So they already have three children they'd adopt in 2006. By 2009, their adoption of these three other kids is finalized. All they're all coming from Texas. Uh, these adoptive kids. An article from Paper Trail, a New Zealand-based um, news outlet. Described his adoption, according to Jennifer, the article said that by age four, the boy had been abused, neglected, shot at, and had endured other traumas. Devante. Devante. The thing that's interesting, this is all coming from Jennifer, they would use any kind of questioning of the behavior of their own treatment of the children and behavior of the children. Uh, Jennifer and Sarah would tell these horrific stories of the children's prior life before being Uh. adopted. From everything I've been able to read, most of it is untrue. Right. To so basically, what down.
0: they're they're doing is kind of blaming the kids' behavior, and people believe them, which we'll talk about later. Right. right.
2: One of the arguments I make is one of the reasons why people believe them was that it played into stereotypical stereotype. Yes. Stereotype. yes it does. You know that there are all these oh they came from these horrible drugged out families and there was all this horrible abuse and right. gunplay. How
1: old were those kids when
0: they adopted them?
2: They were very young.
0: Well, Devonte was four. Yeah. So I guess you can. Yeah. Kind of figure out the others yeah, from that. I think Sierra was a bit younger. I think it was
2: two four six. <laughs> okay. Something like right. that. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing to note is that before the the second group of siblings are adopted, the child protection services in Minnesota already have them on their radar because they've already there's already been an abuse charge.
0: Already have that. Sarah yeah, and with, Jennifer. Yeah,
2: Sarah and Jennifer right. already have the thing where um Hannah has accused them, accused one of them of beating her. You know, so there's already a kind of allegation. There's another incident in November 2010. This time, Abigail Hart, then six, a teacher discovers bruises all over her upper body, um, from her sternum to her navel and also on her back. Wow. And the girl says Jennifer Hart hit her with a closed fist, put her head in a cold bath, and hit her again. She was then grounded, the girl told police, which meant she had to stay in bed and miss lunch. Wow. There's a lot of food deprivation that you're going to be hearing about. What happens is once the investigation takes place and interviews and everything, Sarah Hart pleads guilty. She basically says she's the one who hit mm. uh, Abigail, and she says, yes, it did get out of control. Uh. The horrible thing is the whole thing apparently was based on a penny that they said they found a penny in her pocket, and uh, she said she found it, and they claim she lied about it, and that apparently was what instigated the beating. because
1: wow. <laughs> you never find a penny. Yeah,
2: yes. so Sarah basically is taking the blame, and she pleads guilty. Aww. She gets a suspended sentence, like a 90-day suspended sentence. Um, the next day, after the you know the sentence has been filed, all six of the heart children are taken out of public school, and they never attend public school again.
0: Oh just and, so the, and they
2: <laughs> the Turpins <laughs>
0: so they didn't suffer any there were no repercussions about the adopted children because of her right
2: These children were already formally adopted oh, at so that where Hannah two years before had made this allegation, the adoption of the second set of kids had not been finalized at that point. And some people said at that point there should have been more, more oversight of yes. and maybe looking more thoroughly into what was going on with them. But, yeah, by the time things really start to hit the fan, they have formally adopted all six kids. Mm. So so um, I'm going to read a little bit from a really good Washington Post article. By the way, most of my sources are the Oregonian. And I tried Seattle Times, but they had a paywall. Um, mm. And there's this really good article from the Washington Post and a couple other. There was one Minnesota newspaper Alexandria, Minnesota is a small town about 100 miles southeast of Fargo, North Dakota. Most of the people live there also grew up there. They went to the same schools, voted on the same blue sky shopped in the same stores. They know a lot of each other's secrets.
0: Mm.
2: The Hart family was different. Jennifer and Sarah grew up in small towns in neighboring South Dakota and met as college students in 1999. In 2004, they moved to Alexandria, buying a house on a tiny tree-lined street. Sarah worked as a manager at the Herberger's department store. Jennifer did occasional odd jobs. There's an article from the Oregonian that gets into all the issues dealing with foster care and adoption. This is where I've got the information that Jennifer Howard had studied to be an elementary school teacher but never graduated at Northern State University in South Dakota. And Sarah also had a degree in elementary education from Northern State University, but never got a license as a teacher or applied to be a teacher anywhere. Um, so After adopting Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail in 2006, Jennifer stayed home with the kids. A liberal white lesbian couple with three adopted children of color stood out in a conservative county that is 97% white. But the family also stood out for other reasons, according to others who knew them. Barbara Hines, the listing agent for the house Sarah and Jennifer bought, recalled having dinner with the family in 2006 so this is very soon after they adopted right. those kids so it's the problem started it sounds like almost immediately mm. the children did not speak Hines remembers I really felt there was something that wasn't quite right but I couldn't put my finger on it a relative of Jennifer's who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss private matters said Jennifer often erupted at the children the kids couldn't do anything without getting into trouble the relative said if the kids did anything she thought was wrong she would snap her fingers and say get in the corner no food for you oh, wow. Family members and others who questioned what child-rearing were pretty much cut out, said the relative. Jed wouldn't have anything to do with you if you disagreed with her. It sounds like by the time the tragedy happens, Jennifer and Sarah had pretty much been out of contact with their family for years. Mm, um, so. Yeah. so you're going to, you know, with all these red black. Yeah, black. Yeah. Several people recall the children walking around town in single file. They wouldn't fight or be silly. They were perfect kids, which didn't seem normal to me, said Lorraine Feely, who lived across the street with her husband. It was like they were programmed. When Feely commented to Jennifer about the children's, in quotes, perfect behavior, Jennifer snapped back, they are not perfect. (laughs) She didn't speak to me after that, Feely. In 2010 and 2011, Alexandria Schools reported six incidents involving the children to the State Department of Human Services including wow. reports that the children had been rummaging through trash for food and taking food from other students. Hmm. At first school officials notified the Heartspuff incidents. In January 2011 for example, after Hannah told the school nurse that she hadn't eaten that day, school officials called Sarah but Sarah accused Hannah of, in her, in quotes, playing the food card. Mm. <laughs> playing the old. Food <laughs> As I roll my eyes, you yeah, can't yeah. see it, but oh, I mean, oh yeah, yeah, she's playing the food card. You know? Right, and I instru- do that all the time Me too. And instructed school officials to, in quotes, just give her water. Ah, the wow. school. Hopefully, they ignored her and gave ah, the poor kid I some food. Hope. The school eventually stopped calling the Hearts Hartsparket Show after realizing the children were being punished after, you know, they were told of these reports. There were also signs of physical abuse. In November 2010, oh, I mentioned this before because I'm sources. Anyway. Yeah, this is when the um, bruises on Abigail and that whole thing that precipitated them finally being pulled out of public school. Right. right? The Hearts began homeschooling, as I've said before, which often consisted of nature trips and music festivals, according to Jennifer Hart's social media posts um, mm-hmm. and so that's, well, that's a big part of it too. There's this big social media presence with all these beautiful photographs, mm-hmm. many I have to like say the yeah, well, yeah, with them in all these different beautiful you know the Badlands National Park, mm-hmm. Olympic National Park. Um, all kinds of events they went to. They were quite a fixture at some of these. I'll t- kind of tell you what impression some people had about that. In 2012, according to friends in Oregon, Sarah Hart traveled to Portland on her own to look for work. Uh, Jennifer Hart and the children joined them later. So in April of 2013, uh, the whole family moves uh, to Oregon, to West Lynn, which is basically a suburb of Portland. After the family moves to West Lynn, a family friend, Alexandra R tells Oregon child welfare officials that the Hart parents have been depriving their kids of food as punishment. Apparently, she was a friend who lived in the Bay Area, and twice they came to visit her around that time. One visit was for two weeks, so she really saw a lot that was going on. The Hart's break off contact with her when they learn of it. Baropolis says she was told the Hart children had been interviewed by Oregon officials. It was apparent that each child had been coached by their mothers as to what to say. And nothing more could be done by the Oregon Department of Human Services. So this is a really kind of crucial oh. thing because there was a big, um, July of 2013, there was a big investigation. It seems to be precipitated by an anonymous call to, uh, child, what pair, you know, hotline and that precipitated the investigation this Alexandra Argaropoulos I don't know if she's the one who called or whether she was interviewed in the process she said by that time she'd been cut off because she basically mm. weighed in and said what are you doing and she was out of the picture The uh, the caller on the child welfare hotline, said the heart children appear undernourished and excessively disciplined. The caller notes that the children must get permission before speaking and that they all seem scared to death of Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's an investigation. Ugh. And so uh, one of the things that Alexandra said that happened when they were visiting her, she got everybody pizza. And Jennifer would only let each child eat one tiny piece of pizza for dinner. Uh, the next morning, the leftover pizza was gone. And there was this huge... And Jennifer exploded, oh. accused the children of stealing it. She denied them breakfast and made them lie in bed wearing sleeping masks, arms at their sides for five hours. Oh my god.
0: Wow.
2: Just um, like the turpins, though. Yeah. yeah. Like- Archaeopolis also said that kindness and respect were largely absent in Jennifer's interactions with the children. Her reactions were overblown, the punishment seemingly unnecessarily cruel. Oh, another thing that the report, there was this big 30 page Department of Human Services report that was the result of this investigation in the summer of 2013. And one of the things they noted was the children were very, very small. Um, and that's really kind of disturbing how this kind of plays out. And I actually read the actual report. There was a news, I think it was K2 news report that actually had embedded the report. Unfortunately, I couldn't download the actual, you couldn't download it anymore, but I could kind of read it in the little slider thing. (laughs) And uh, so I read the actual report and it's quite disturbing. You can tell that the DHS investigator is really disturbed and wants to do more and is a bit incredulous. There was a doctor and I think they may have been, he may have been chosen by the hearts. Apparently they can do that if they're not. These children, eleven. Hannah weighed fifty pounds and stood less than four feet tall. Stature typical oh, of a six-year-old.
0: Yeah, I was to say that's about. Devonte also hands, eleven yeah.
2: stood about four feet two and weighed 57 pounds, the size of a typical eight-year-old boy. The only Jeremiah actually was on the charts for a normal height and weight for his age. All other five kids were well, but they weren't. he Aww. didn't even make the charts.
1: Where was he in the age? Range, well, he
2: and Hannah—they the well, were both sixteen oh, okay. when the when the crime happened, as okay. I would call it. So they were kind of in the middle. In mm-hmm. this DHS report, each child is like there's a summary about each child, and each one, in each one, it says the doctor is not concerned, even though the child does not meet. The minimal, da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. You can see the DHS investigator is like another article I read that looked at how could something like this happen. A lawyer who advocates for children who are abused in foster care and adoption, he said there's way too much leeway. He said not just any doctor might be able to spot this kind of deprivation. Right. Well, the
0: other thing is a doctor might be of the opinion <sighs> that Because they were deprived as, as when they were little, that they wouldn't catch up, although a lot of times they can. Yes. Or at least get, even if they're a little bit smaller than normal, they will still...
2: And mm-hmm. that's what Sarah and Jennifer said, Right. that they had all these food issues before we got them. Yeah. Right. And they had all this deprivation before we got them, and they were always really small. And part right.
0: of that probably
1: is stereotyping. And, and also, as in other things I've read, like that book, you're reading The Death of the Innocent, doctors in a lot of cases, maybe not so much now that child abuse is on the forefront, defer to parents mm-hmm. and their opinions. Yeah, yeah. Doctors are busy people. And, and he had never killed, seen these children before, right. as
2: far as I could tell. So they didn't have like a family doctor because they did all this homeopathic stuff, right? And so the one of the things these people said was that, and let you children should in fact be checked periodically. You know, to kind of see as, are they growing the way they should Which be. Which they and, do
0: when you have a child and you go and, to your And apparently these up, children weren't. So this doctor, out. I
2: think it was a one time thing where he saw these kids. But in any case I could kind of sense that the DHS person doing the report was like Ooh, yeah. right. Right. was like very frustrated. So Jennifer and Sarah said the children had issues with food that predated their adoption. The doctor who evaluated the children and quotes expressed no concerns, the report said, in part because Jennifer and Sarah insisted the children had been small their entire lives. Mm-hmm. During the investigation, a Minnesota ch- how they all were, mm-hmm. A Minnesota child welfare worker warned Oregon officials that Jennifer and Sarah had long deflected suspicions by blaming the children for their problems. So back in Minnesota, there was a case worker who's saying, This is the pattern that you're gonna see with them. Mm-hmm. Without regular oversight from doctors, teachers, or child welfare workers, the Minnesota mm-hmm. worker wrote. The hurt children risk falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Still, officials at Oregon were unable to determine whether child abuse or neglect had occurred. The children interviewed independently reported no abuse, one child welfare worker wrote. By all accounts, they have been coached. Uh-huh. A few things else came out of that report that I just picked up on, so I'll just mention a few of those before I move on. Um, one thing that was said was that in all the interactions the authorities had, Jennifer was clearly the dominant person in the Relationship. Some of the informants they had in this report, I'm not sure if this woman, Alexandra Argeopoulos, was the only one. It sounds like there was more than one person they talked to. Um, one who said, a female who said that Jennifer was, uh, told her she was obsessed with her and wanted to leave Sarah. Mm. But they said that Sarah was completely under the thumb of Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people when all this began to come out that were just incredulous. People who knew them. Who um, And I just have one example that's interesting. Elizabeth and Tyler Boggs run a farm and a pantry. It's called the Good Neighbor Family Pantry. It's a nonprofit where they basically give out produce uh, for poor families. And apparently they met the Hart family, this is in Oregon, because they showed up for free produce. And then the kids started to volunteer there, and they said they had dozens of interactions with kids, never saw anything that was of concern to them. They basically were saying, couldn't there be some foul play that outside of the mothers and because they was clearly having a big this was in April 10th or so this piece was done. But one of the things I had to laugh at because it seems to me like knowing what was going on, the Boggs said they never saw any warning signs and thought Jennifer and Sarah Hart were ideal parents. I don't believe that Boggs said of the alleged abuse. I can't think of a single instance where I had any concern. The kids would come here and there would be thousands of pounds of food all around them, and the children would be eating food constantly. Boggs added, they weren't malnourished. They were <laughs> super healthy children. And they I'm like, yeah, maybe. maybe they were eating constantly because they were just like starving. And this was a chance for them to actually have some food. I
0: want to say, too, I, I was just looking at pictures of, of the women uh, line. They're both a t- very attractive women. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um And that, I think... Probably has a lot to do with some of the leeway that I got, not to to beauty shame anybody.
2: (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that the Minnesota caseworker warned about, she basically said, people have been letting them get away with things because in her words, she said they look normal. Yeah. And you can read a lot into that. uh, Yeah. But But they're they're very nice looking. They're middle class. Mm -hmm. They're college educated. They're white they're attractive, yeah. they're all the things that you would not suspect yeah, could uh, be why why of yeah. abusive. So. And also back to the people
1: who, oh, we never saw anything. Oh, geez, Normal, regular, everyday people who have a certain type of interaction with other people aren't qualified to diagnose psychopaths right. and right. psychopathic behavior. And psychopaths are really good at people seeing a certain side of them, like the people who are really, like at least Jennifer Hart was,
2: are also good at putting on a certain public face. Right, right, and she worked very hard at that, yeah. you know, with that social media presence. Um, one of the things they know in various sources is that all these friends, no one ever went to their house, no one ever saw the inside of their house, mm. no one ever saw what went on inside their own home. And that is kind of a red yeah, flag. Of course. Um, so so it's around this time, November from the 2014, was the protest over the Michael Brown, fatal shooting of Michael Brown, where you have the famous photograph, you see Devante in tears be, hugging and being hugged by a Portland cop. <laughs> Saying to the cop, please take me. <laughs> I know, I know. And that's one of the things people said, you know, you look back at that photograph and you're thinking, right? it means course, something yeah. much different now that you have some idea of what was yeah, going on. right. You know, so they also went to a Bernie Sanders rally of in March. 2016, (laughs) and a big rally in Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the river from Portland, and they actually called up on the stage and everything, and so, you know, there's all this stuff going on. So, in May of 2017, they move again to Woodland, Washington, and the excuse they gave was that when that photo of Devontae and the cop kind of went viral, they got all this negative... They said they got nice stuff, but they got a lot of negative hate mail and stuff like Now, they also said this about being in Alexandria, Minnesota. And I didn't hear if any of that was ever corroborated. They said, like, their house was egged. One of the things they said in that DHS report was that they got all these people making charges against them because people uh were hostile towards the alternative lifestyle and the fact that they were lesbians and that they had all this kind of natural medicine and natural food and all this stuff. And although I couldn't corroborate it when I looked up for the support, I remember reading in the Oregonian that they had said to friends we're moving to Washington State because we've had all this negative attention and you know we were fearful and everything from the the photograph and we just want to move to a different place. And the Oregonian did not find any evidence that they'd ever made police reports or that they right. had ever reported getting any kind of harassing or threatening. And so my feeling is it's just another right. excuse. And to, also, for another reason to move to a different state where authorities wouldn't where know rock about the them. Raver. yeah. And
1: also, too, as, a, as somebody who worked for a newspaper, if somebody was saying, oh, we're getting all this negative attention, what we would do at the newspaper is check social media to see what negative attention they were saying yeah. because this is now 2000. This is 2016. 16, yeah. People aren't mailing them letters. Right. 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 It's you all know, online. People yeah. aren't even if depending on how private their Facebook page are, isn't even aren't even sending them. People are talking. If it's true, are talking about them on social right. media. So as a journalist would check social media right, to see right. what people were saying yeah. about them. And if they couldn't find anything, then you kind of wonder, so what, were they getting letters in the mail? Yeah, I know. You know? I know. So I'm,
2: I'm assuming it's just made up, and and I'm kind of assuming, maybe unfairly, that those stories back in Minnesota of being harassed and threatened were probably bogus as well. Or uh, highly you, exaggerated. Or highly yes. exaggerated.
1: In any case, a good excuse to leave that people wouldn't question and also puts people in the position of feeling... A little guilty and a little, oh, gee, well, I can understand, yeah, and yeah. not wanting to poke it
2: too much right, or right, ask right, too many right, questions. exactly. Yeah. So, in May 2017, Jennifer and Sarah Hart buy a two-story three-bedroom home on two acres of land in the Woodland area of Clark County, Washington. Wow, okay. where's their money? Coming? That's something that no one has really answered. They did get from Texas. They got, um, I think it was a total for all six kids about $1,900. Wait, a month. did all six yeah. kids
1: come from Texas? All six
2: kids came from Texas. Because even
1: though they were living
2: in, yeah, that's yeah, another thing that's, that's kind of, kind of controversial, controversial, and I'll say and a little did, bit about that. I know that people event. that
0: have adopted children, especially older children, state adoptions, you do get a stipend. You get, yes. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. and, um, and that we would be getting that until those kids were 18.
0: Because when I was, when I had first gotten divorced and, People knew that I wanted children. Somebody who was an advocate for adoption that I knew told me that. They said, well, you know, if you're worried about about paying the good thing about adopting is I you know, I have three children that I adopted and I get money for each child. Well just think to of to help with their you know, it's child support. I, I, guess, I
1: understand or. why it's there, but on the other hand, just think of how it can be abused yes. and the wrong right. people are adopting yes. kids. Well for even the wrong so reasons.
2: though I'm thinking nineteen they they test estimate it would be nineteen hundred for all six kids a month and then uh, Jennifer doesn't have a job, and Sarah is, like, working in retail. I know. She was, like, a supervisor at Kohl's, which is kind of like a target. You probably yes, we would America's make, at the
0: most, maybe $15 an hour. So I they 15? were they were
2: estranged from their families, so they weren't getting help from them. So I had never had any explanation of how they were able to buy these properties. That's, uh, and you look at the pictures of it, it looks like a nice house. So mm. I have no idea. So they packed up and moved again. Soon after, in May 2017, um, police receive a report. Actually, it must have been later now that I'm looking at it. I get a couple of kind of... Conflicting reports here. Hannah had jumped out of a second-story window of the house at 1.30 a.m. and appeared at the nearby home of Bruce and Dana DeKalb, covered in weeds and missing two teeth. Oh. Hmm. Hannah told the DeKalb that the moms were racist and were abusing her, in quotes, according to a state child hmm. welfare report. Although she was 16 at the time, Hannah looked barely 7. Bruce DeKalb said wow. in an interview, he said actually he didn't know. She, he thought she was 7. Wow. He, she was railed to the bone, he said, and crouched between the bed and the dresser when Sarah and Jennifer came looking for her. Mm-hmm. Months later, Devante showed up, uh, begging for peanut butter, tortillas, and other food. The boy pleaded with the cults not to call the police, saying he feared that he and his siblings would be split up. At one point, too, after one of these incidents, and at some other source that I don't remember, they said that the next day, Jen and Sarah kind of marched the kids over to the DeKalbs with apology notes saying, oh, we just, you know, Mm. we're just making all up, we're being brats. Oh, March, this is kind of getting down to the wire, in March of 2018, after about a dozen visits from Devontae, the DeKalbs called the child services. On March 26th, police and social workers knocked on the door of the Hart home. No one answered. The investigation was opened March 23rd. I'm a little confused about the timeline because... It sounds like someone went to the home on March 23rd to try and talk to them. There were three separate attempts between the 23rd and the 27th where they tried to contact the family. This time, the first time the SUV was in the driveway, but no, there was no sign of any activity in the house. No one came to the door, whether it was child welfare person, whatever, who showed up, went around to the back, you know, knocked on the back door and I think no one answered on March 24th. 2018, Sarah Hart sends a 3 a.m. text message to a friend who's named Cheryl Hart, no, no relation, relation mm-hmm. I believe, saying she's so sick she might have to, she won't be able to be, go to work and may ha- might have to go to the hospital. The friend never hears from Sarah. Again, that's the 24th of March. That same day, the family is seen in or around Newport, Oregon, around 8.14 a.m. They continue south on Route 101 until they reach State Route 1 in Luggett, California, Um, They travel south on Route 1. There is actually a surveillance film in um, some sort of convenience store where they think it's Sarah Hart. And they're in Mendocino, the area of Mendocino, around 8 p.m. They know that the family stays there until about 9 p.m. March 25, 2018. Uh, On the 26th, 2018, remember, that's the day that they find the the person who spots the SUV at the bottom of the cliff. Cheryl Hart calls the Clark County Emergency Dispatcher at 1.15 p.m., asking the Clark County Sheriff's Office to do a welfare check at the family's Washington home. They, I guess they try, and then the Department of Social Health Services, again, tries to contact. The last time, they they try on the 27th. Of course, they've been dead for who knows how many longs. So that's the kind of rundown of what happened. Just a few of the issues that came up in my going over all of this is like the the problems with the adoption system. And one of the things is the, uh, I just want to talk just a little bit about the biological family of Devante, Sierra, and Jeremiah. Their aunt had actually had custody of them. Their mother had lost custody because of drug abuse. Everyone agrees that it was right that she lost custody of the children. Their aunt, Priscilla Celestine, was uh taking care of them. She was a stable job. Apparently everything was well. But she was not supposed to let the children see the mother. And whether she didn't uh, quite understand that or whether she like. had a job, apparently something happened. She had a, to get to her work. She asked the mom to come over and watch the kids for a couple hours, you know, while she finished That's up what, work yeah. and got back.
0: We've hit, we've and a
2: child welfare worker came by. The children were immediately removed from the home. Mm-hmm. The thing that the... See, funny
1: how fast the kids were removed from that home. Well, that's just it. They,
2: the, uh, the lawyer for the Philistine family is like, the children were immediately whisked away. Priscilla Philistine and her husband repeatedly petitioned the court to get the children back. And they were actually rushed into adoption. Um, Which, they were, they, what they, they, they were dismissed yeah. hmm. by the court. And it was that one thing. You know, the, you know, the, the lawyer is like, okay, maybe it was unwise for her to let her, but that was like one incident right. when everything had been going great for the kids. You're going to break up a biological family yeah, over that right. one thing? Well, it also, that reminds me of Logan Mars yes, yes. in that episode.
0: The thing that bothers me about these kind of situations, even if they put them in foster care for a period of time, that's fine, but to make them available to be adopted yeah. permanently by somebody who's not family. Like and they've done that. Yeah, of being from the Somebody yeah. who's not yeah. only that not family, but from a thousand
2: miles away of a different race yeah, who the kids right. have no connection right, with and don't right. know. Uh, right, yeah. A, and so so, the, so that's a big, big part. Another part of it is on the Minnesota side, which has pretty stringent state regulations and everything about adoption, but apparently the small adoption agency that was handling these mm-hmm. these adoptions uh, just a couple months after the Hertz finalized that last adoption of Devante, Sarah, and Jeremiah, they came under scrutiny of the Adoption Agency for cutting corners. So there are various sources I've seen that said on the Texas side, they had a system where they were actually fast-tracking adoptions, particularly of minority children. Yeah, Um And states apparently get more money from the federal government the more quickly... They get children out of foster care into adoption, mm-hmm. and because so then the state doesn't have to pay for the kids right, anymore. Right. And that's then right. the and then on the Minnesota side, you have this kind of dicey small adoption company that's not really doing due diligence, and it was finally shut down in 2012, but it was actually under sanction within a couple months of the hearts finalizing their last adoption for various violations of state regulations. So how so how does it work? Somebody in Minnesota
1: wants to adopt a kid and there's like a nationwide clearinghouse and oh, we have three black kids in Texas.
2: Boom. No, well, boom. apparently the out-of-state adoptions are one of the things that this adoption agency got in trouble for because they are seen as more problematic and they're seen as something that shouldn't be kind of pursued aggressively and should be avoided at all possible that it would be better to adopt the children are going to be adopted within state, and apparently one of the things but that this is sure to get rid of them. Yeah. Sure. I know. But, but this adoption agency Texas. in Minnesota. Remember the adoption agencies in Minnesota, yeah. apparently what they're doing is they're going to whatever state wants to get rid of their black kids as quick as possible. And Texas is happy to oblige and they're cutting a lot of corners and so and so, everything. And it's and like so it's overseas. Yeah. Right. And so were
1: both sets of the Hearts kids was that through the
2: same adoption
1: agency? Yeah. Okay.
2: yeah. This through the same adoption agency. Yeah. And I think different county judges in Texas who made these rulings that allowed them to be adopted. And I know much less about the first three. But there's this been that several sources went into detail. Washington Post did this big thing about the Celestine family and their efforts to try and get um there's this one thing I wanted to mention too. It's a little bit eerie, but maybe be able to try. And this Washington Post article talks about these friends who just can't believe. You know, that. and they show us all these videos of the kids dancing at music festivals and everything. Mm. And he said, uh, that one of the things some people have mentioned is that there's uh, there's a song called Mr. Washington from a group called NACO, or Medicine for the People, or NACO. I don't know, I've never heard of them. And it says, in the context of the Heart's Last Moments, however, the song's opening lyrics read like despair. Me and Mr. Washington go forth with no real direction, dreaming of the day we drive our cars into the ocean. Oh, and all wow. the people looking on will wonder what to say and live confused about us till the day they do the same and they will... While swimming, that they are free.
1: Mm, um, but, now, um, is that a song the
2: hearts l- knew or like? Yes, so it was apparently like Jennifer's, like one of her favorite songs. Hmm. Ah, well, yeah. wow. So, yes. um, just a couple of other things. I mentioned a lot of stuff about the problems with adoption. Um, one of the things. That, that Hearts did was, you know, the multiple, the moving frequently, the pulling out. There was a whole article I read about the particular problems with homeschool children, not to say that, no. it's not, that homeschooling isn't okay, but it huh? is a much more problematic. And there are a number of, in Oregon, there are a number of famous cases of horrific abuse of homeschooled children, and one of the reasons why the abuse went to... Yeah, to the extent it was, was because there was no. Well, that's right. what we talked about with the term. With the term, not that someone
0: homeschooling is more likely to abuse, but an abusive, controlling person, they can use that to mask. Right, what right. Really. right. Because the teachers and people who are supposed to
1: report aren't there to do it, no. and a lot of the normal checks you have on a kid aren't
0: done.
2: Well, one of the things is the hearts never registered the kids as being homeschooled, and mm-hmm. any of the states where they did it, and when they started doing it in Minnesota, in Oregon, and Washington, and there's very little mechanism to force people to do that, and even people who are advocates, homeschool advocates, say it's a, it's quite common for people. To not do it, they said most people just do it as an oversight; they just right. don't realize. But I'm sure they were, you know, it was it's was a way of kind of being under the radar yeah. and yeah, and not having Especially the authorities
0: after that. Psycho who's right. probably paranoid,
2: right? Because the
1: other thing is, aside from being able to be off the radar and everything, there's also that attitude that no one's going to tell me how to raise my kids or how to teach my kids or what to do with my kids, and I don't want people interfering with me and my kids,
0: right? Right. Mm-hmm.
2: So that that woman, Alexandra Argiopoulos, who's that friend who gave all that information about the abuse, is trying to get a petition to to get a nationwide registry for child abuse mm-hmm. and child welfare reports because she said that's part of the problem. And in fact, they, they mentioned that in the Oregon Department of Health Services, they cannot actually... Demand you know, like say to Minnesota, hey, we want to see all the possible oh, criminal wow. records or anything. We want to see the child any reports that you have on this family. They actually can't do it. They they, they have very specific privacy charges. Concerns and yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she said it's a real problem. So that's one of the problems. Another issue. We're probably running. run out of time. No, Don't we're not. not. We got all the time in the world. Don't worry. Well, I was going to say it's just interesting the whole phenomenon of family annihilators is interesting. Mm, I yes. found a couple of things. An orgoni, a couple of things that were referenced uh, this specifically. And um, one was a woman who's a psychologist who is interested in these cases. Is it, she, Laura, is it yeah. Laura
1: Richards? Um, no. Is she? Um,
2: yeah, I don't see where I have the the reference to it. But I can give it to you if you want to post it. To yeah, yeah, But sure. she she does what cases. I okay. She looks, oh here it is. It's called criminalcode.com. The criminalcode.com, and she actually she's like I want to understand these kinds of crimes better to help, just like Laura. Yeah. yeah. And I don't remember her name. I'm uh, sorry to say. But now just is like, that a
0: website? Or? It's a Website, yeah. Okay.
2: And she does this, like, just this one-page brief kind of thing. And she said most family annihilators are men. They mm-hmm. usually use a gun. So she said in those ways this is different. And she said, you know, let's just say maybe there's a small possibility it was an accident, the drunkenness, for instance. You know, mm. possibly, you know, yeah. wasn't really, you know, I think it's unlikely, but you know, it's one possible scenario, though I think the authorities are basically treating it as a deliberate, yeah. um, murder, suicide. Yeah. And, but she said there are all kinds of other things, um, that are, she said sometimes, not always, but she said often, there's a, pattern of abuse spousal abuse as well as yeah. child abuse mm-hmm. she said there's this feeling that children are just extensions yeah. of the person yeah. right and so they have to present this perfect and there's obviously facade and she said is. if anything is going to threaten that facade of the perfect family yeah. it's seen as kind of attack on the inner core of that person and they have to eliminate the family yeah. because they become then a problem and so she kind of gets into a lot of interesting things like that and she said It sounds like Jennifer Hurt has some of the kind of classic tendencies. Well, part of
0: it is, yeah, narcissism and control issues. And even people who, like you said, are abusers in the technical sense or in the sense where they're beating them, they probably have control issues or at least a sense of narcissism and entitlement that, you know, I want to change my life, so I'm gonna gonna get rid of all this stuff that's causing my life to not be what I want. Like, because I got a hot new girlfriend, right? Right, right. And I don't want this nagging ex wife and brats in the way. Like, (laughs) and and people
1: have trouble. Normal people who don't have a lot of imagination, I guess, have trouble understanding. What they killed the kids because of blah blah blah. They did this. They killed their whole family. They wouldn't have killed their whole family because of that. And what they don't understand is how somebody like that thinks. Yeah. You can't make the mistake, and we say all the time, of thinking that people who do things like that think the same way you right, are. Right, right. And I'm sure Jennifer Hart, because from from everything you said, she seemed, Sarah Hart seems what well, probably as abused as the kid. Yeah. yeah. She was submissive. But right. she probably felt like very threatened – And that it's better to kill the entire family, including herself, than to be unmasked. Right, or right. to have the kids taken away. Even though she didn't particularly have any love for the kids. Yeah. yeah. It's not that oh I don't want my kids taken away because I can't live with them. Well they're an extension kids. of herself, yeah, right? Yeah. So
2: and well I'm thinking too, oh, they're getting older. Marcus was nineteen. I know, oh. I know. And so and, and wow. I'm thinking how everything seemed um, to be getting that's more desperate. What struck me. When they were, were younger, younger they yes. couldn't like jump out of the second floor window and run to a neighbor. Oh they're yeah. getting to the point where they're gonna she and, couldn't and, and, control. and so she couldn't control it anymore. So it was it, it, it's like it was it was all Here's yet again, they're being investigated. Now the kids are a lot older. you know, it's all spinning out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I hate to think of that day, that day, in that house. I, can, I, yeah. I this is kind of what haunts me is that there they were clearly at home. so I can see them all in that house. And I'm just thinking, like... Like
1: that time mom had us hide from the Fuller Brush <laughs> Right, right. right.
2: <laughs> you know, when someone's knocking at the door. Right. And it's like, and the poor kids are probably thinking, hey, maybe we're going to get saved now. Because they're old enough to kind of right. think like that. Yeah. Obviously, they knew the way they were, Oh, anyways, the whole thing is just...
1: Two, it's sad. And I know social service agencies are overburdened and everything. But it's sad the amount of complaints, mm-hmm. the amount of red flags... And they were just allowed people apparently said, Oh, okay
2: Well, some of the comments they saw in some news articles, well it was all very PC and because they were lesbian, they didn't dare and I said it wasn't because they were bullshit. lesbian. That's it was because they were white and middle class.
0: Right. It, was. it and wasn't maybe
2: like, okay, good looking women. Right. you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like people were much... afraid
1: to make waves with them because they were lesbians and it were they being were PC, PC yes. because people they, for all this like bullshit about what's PC and what isn't, people have no issue crapping on minorities, crapping on LGBT, people have no problem doing that. They were getting away with it not because people didn't want to make waves, but they were because they were two good-looking white women. Who people just naturally believed, and oh, look at this wonderful thing taking in these right. little black kids. And I think they
2: they presented yeah. themselves very well. Yeah, you know? and they
1: were good looking. And I and I know that the fact that they were white counted more than that. But as we know, people who are attractive, you know, it's the whole Ted
2: Bundy I, phenomenon, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: I'm not making people this up. You no, know, it's
2: true. It's people are more willing to
1: to give leeway to an attractive person true. if they if they both were were very unattractive in one
0: way or another, and still white, they may have gotten less. Mm -hmm. We did the um, episode on Logan Marr. At that time, the state of Maine had been, they used to focus on trying to keep the kids with their family, and then they were switching away to that and giving them to other people, and that's what happened. She was taken away from her mother, blah, 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 put on a fast track, very similar. Now, after that happened, they were kind of going back to, let's put them with family. Well, now I'm going to be doing a show coming up on two little girls that were both with family there have been a lot of red flags with these two girls but they one what? of the thing is they were left with their family because the state's like well we want to try to keep families together to me it's not either or it's each individual case is important but right. we just don't our society doesn't put enough and i know i sound like i'm like no, say it. it's not a priority to it's protect children yeah. it's never funded correctly These caseworkers
2: have huge caseworkers. And what I was going to say, right. And what I was going
0: to say, too,
1: is it isn't taken seriously. It's the first thing that goes in budgets. But also, because of that, the whole superficial, we have to keep kids with families. We have to take kids out of families is more, becomes a bigger issue because nobody has the time or the, the, the the wherewithal. To, or the motivation to look at each one, but I felt like with the Logan Marr case, I think it was episode 25, but I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. She was not given half the leeway and credit that her, the mother wasn't as hard as she was was trying as as the woman who adopted her, who ended up killing the poor child, was. Yeah.
0: Another. And that was a class thing as well. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. These cases are just so depressing because it's just, things like this just keep happening, and it's not, it's a preventable tragedy. And you think about these poor kids, their lives have sucked, and then they get killed. At least the ones that we know about, you know, their mother... Had issues, but then their aunt and uncle were fine. Yeah, they were. They and, you know, were in a stable, and the loving thing is, situation. Don't, don't make rules like that. That's what happened with Logan Marr, where where the the um, stepfather, whoever, the family member that wasn't supposed to be near kids, unknown uh, to the child's mother, was with her, and immediately she was taken away. Right, immediately.
1: Immediately, and that's a point and that's, that happened. Couple I remember times. the point I wanted to make. It happened with the caretakers of Devontae and Jeremiah and Sarah, Sarah yeah. is poverty play. And people are taking care of the kids and they're fine, but poverty has an effect. And in Logan Maher's case,
0: she it was have, she didn't have a car. She, she didn't, didn't have, have a car, one, yep.
1: and it's Maine, so you have to have one. In their case, she needed someone to watch the kids while she was at work. Who better to watch them than their mother? Right, right, you know? right. And it's not like the mother was she they had were to living. get living. She had to work. You know? right. She would have gotten fired. And, and, that's where they would have and been. so there's this really superficial thing. Take the kids away from the impoverished people and give them mm-hmm. to somebody with some wherewithal and pay the people with some wherewithal. How about taking that 1900 bucks a month And giving it to the aunt to take care of the kids. Right, right. Exactly. Right. And the other thing, too, is the very superficial impression, aside from race, but the class thing, that if you're more well-off, although, again, it's hard to figure out how the heart women wear their money, that somehow you're just better for kids. Right, right. But I think if you asked the kids, do you want to stay with your family and be poor, or live with these people you don't know, somewhere you don't know, who are going to abuse you and mistreat you. And apparently it didn't matter that they had money because they weren't feeding the
0: kids. But I was going to Just say, like the I don't think they had money. I don't know how they were I said before that, I've said this in another show, that when I used to volunteer at uh, Maine Youth Center, which is called something else now, but it was the prison. Long place, Creek. Long Creek Youth, Youth Development. Development Center. These kids that I volunteered with were young teens, pre tweens and teens. They always wanted to be with their parents, always, no matter how they had been. They were hoping, a lot of them had been in foster care and had run away, and that's why they were in the, which was dumb, but that's why they were in there. Or something else had happened, and they weren't, a lot of times they were not, their parents were not in the picture, and that's all they wanted, no matter how bad an outsider looking in would think their parents were, they still want to be with them. And I always feel like, and I know I sound like a Pollyanna, or people are going to be you know, bleeding Who cares what people think? But I always, the society would be better served if we could somehow help the parents, if they need help learning how to deal with things, if they need to be in rehab, if they need help, then help keep the family together if that's what everybody wants. Right, if the issue
1: is an issue of their poverty or resources or because they don't have a support system or something, the money's better spent helping keep the kids with parents. Obviously you don't want to keep kids with parents who are abusive
0: or neglecting them but there's a big gap And If it's just the fact that they're poor and they have to work so they left their kid at McDonald's Play center for five hours. Yeah. You know? It's, but, and also, a totally different topic,
1: the family annihilators. You feel like it's not taken as seriously. If somebody went into the school and killed six random kids, it's
0: much more... What am I trying It's to? more... People are going to be more shocked, maybe? Yeah. Or, or it's more of a, yeah, wow, on one my hand, God, Well, no, happened. on one
1: hand you have people saying, oh, how can people kill their own kids? But on the other hand, it's almost not considered as much of a crime in a way.
2: Or? One of the things that woman says, actually, this just strikes me. Again, I I, I, I didn't have my um, laptop right here in front of me. But she, she mentions, actually, that what people don't realize is that most mass killings are, in fact, these family... Mm-hmm. Massacres mm. that um, yeah. statistically, you know, people don't really think of them in the same way, right? No, so they they're don't. not necessarily. So there was these kind of random mass shootings or mass killings. But she said actually, most mass killings are actually family right. and also type, I would say thing. that
0: when you look at a lot of these mass shooters, they start with their, they start with their, yeah, like Charles okay. Whitman, you know, yeah. the uh, Texas Charles Tower. Whitman did the um, Adam Lanza, Adam Lanza, Adam Lanza Adam killed, killed his mother? mother. Most mother. of the time, they'll kill. they yeah, kill the people close to them. And and then they and go, they, and, and then do, they some. yeah, and then they it's not enough, so they have to. Oh, but anyway, thank you. No, that was, thank uh, you. No. I good. enjoyed
2: it. so it was a very grim and sad. Well, well they all are, all are. You know, uh, that's what. But
1: we it do. was interesting. interesting. It was interesting. interesting. And now we have some recommendations. Okay, so we have our recommendations, and I'm going to go first because okay. I said so. You know how last week you
0: had a show that. It wasn't your toe oh, recommendation. That yeah, that, that the you. Hunt by John, with John. Right,
1: that's, that's bad, but you, that you have to watch it. Yes. That's what I feel about The Investigator. Ah, yes, I've watched it. And that. I watched the first season and I don't remember a lot about it. So this review is based on the three episodes of the second season. And the premise is it's a British true crime reality in quotes, very heavy yeah. quotes. <laughs> show <laughs> an investigator Mark Williams Thomas he's got like three first names kind of guy hyphenated last name Thomas Williams or Williams, is ostensibly investigating a crime in this case the disappearance 40 years ago of a young woman beachy head Beachy head. <laughs> I'll just get right into the review. Bad reenactment yes, there are many many reenactments and the thing about this, it's something by its nature, just because it's a reenactment doesn't mean it's bad. But when you overdo it, instead of, it means you don't have the photos and the interviews and the things that you need to really tell the story. And this, because it takes place in the 70s and 80s, they're wearing like 70s and 80s kind of clothes and everything. Although I'll say those aren't bad, because I've seen it and Yeah, and
0: it The clothing it, isn't bad, it's just the...
1: Oh, they do a good job of the period clothing, yeah. but they still have a lot of bad reenactments. Yeah. So I'm taking away a point for the reenactments. Narrative cliches. Actually, I want to say there aren't that many. The racial gender obtuseness. No, there are, there's only one race so far <laughs> on this show. It's the white one. And there's no gender obtuseness. Lack of good visuals. I'm taking away half a point because they show the same. Photos over and over and over again. I understand, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, you're not going to have a lot of fo- the photos of people you do now when everybody's taking selfies and on social media. But there's also a lack of visuals. I mean, they could show other things too photos from the time. Every once in a while, you see a crime scene photo from the time, and it's like, okay, wow, cool. And that's about it. Missing pieces, so many. <laughs> so many missing pieces. I'm taking away a point. There's just giant, giant holes. Inaccuracies and anachronisms. And not really. I mean, I don't know what's inaccurate because I, you know, I'm not that familiar with these cases. Anachronisms. No, except for the fact that in this entire time, these crimes took place that he's looking into in the late seventies. And nobody says, you know, it was 40 years ago. I really don't know. People talk about it like it was yesterday. Like, was this the man you saw as you sat in your car on that rainy night? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody says, well, gee, you know, it was 1978, and now it's 2017 or 16 or whatever the show <laughs> So I'm not really sure. About you. So, um <laughs> Storytelling. Here's where we get to the big, if I could take away more than one point, <laughs> I would. First of all, maybe this guy really is investigating these crimes, but it, what he's really doing is, I feel like watching, when I'm watching it, is he's going over what police have already gone over and acting as if they're new revelations yeah. to him it's funny, because I've discovered blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out when police interviewed him about this in 1979, it was blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, oh, wait, you didn't discover it. Police discovered it. One of the big issues I have in the second season is he he's looking into what happened to this girl and concludes that she may be a victim of the serial killer Peter Tobin, who I saw another documentary about. And it's interesting. But then he kind of gets off. He goes to Glasgow. And gets off on this track. These other three girls that he thought in nineteen, I think it was seventy eight, may have been killed by this guy. But then it turns out they were killed by Angus, Angus. right? But but and then there's a fourth one that was a few weeks before these ones that all of a sudden he mentions. But yeah, somebody else was arrested. And the guy who was arrested was a serial rapist the cops didn't like. They found the woman's compact and three buttons from their coat hidden in his house. That was the totality of the evidence. The MO was exactly the same. She was tied exactly the same. Everything was exactly the same as the one's Angus... Sebastian, I, I think his name is. I want to say Angus Young because... Um, <laughs> I so wanting to say Angus easy. King, <laughs> Angus King, our senator. But, I, and I think it's a case where they liked this uh, serial rapist for it because they couldn't figure it out. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they planted this evidence. So he appealed saying the evidence had been planted. And so our intrepid investigator asks, 40 years later, the cop in charge of the case, if the evidence was planted, and the guy says, no, we wouldn't do that. And so instead of our investigator saying, okay, he says they didn't, but maybe they could have because it's more likely that Angus killed this woman. He decides, you think he decides, that the serial rapist and Angus were co-offenders together. And so he finds other cases where Angus got his brothers-in-law to do Mm -hmm. crimes. So the fact that he convinced other guys to do crimes means he got the serial rapist to kill these women. And I don't know... I'm not an investigator, but these crimes look like the kind of ones that were committed by one guy. And to me, it's more likely that police planted a compact and three buttons. Yeah, yeah. It's not like it's her bloody handkerchief, yeah, right, right, you know? Right, right. It's more likely that police pa- planted that evidence because they figured this guy did it and liked this guy and Angus wasn't on the radar. Yeah. Angus wasn't arrested t- till DNA came around. Yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. And huh. so he goes on this big, I think it's almost the whole third episode of trying to tie Angus and this guy together. Yeah, that
0: was very And it's
1: totally, and it's just wrong. And it's, maybe it's because he's a cop and he's not going to say, but we all know of zillions of cases where cops thought they had the right guy and didn't have any evidence, especially in the 70s, when there wasn't DNA testing and all that. So the storytelling is a very large minus one. The other thing about the storytelling, actually, I'll get to that in repetition. Freshness... I had heard of Peter Tobin. I had not heard of Angus Sebastian, I think his name is. So I will say it's fresh, but the way it's done isn't fresh. I feel like he's taking something that's already been investigated, and he's
0: almost an actor. Yeah, he he has those fake phone calls like, Sure, yes, blah, 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 blah. Like, and I like his
1: two assistants One of them's standing there with a notebook Like writing down what he's saying And the other one's kind of standing there looking like Am <laughs> I supposed to be acting <laughs> like I'm ready? You know, yeah, you know, I hate that whole Where they act out finding out information Or calling people and, oh, So I'm taking 0.5 away for freshness Repetition Oh my god the repetition. And here's one little example When he's still on the <laughs> Peter Tobin thing He, he quote-unquote, finds out because it turns out the cops found this out. Just like the cops investigated the serial rapist Angus Sebastian Ties apparently decades ago. You find out, you get little hints of as this goes along. He didn't figure it out himself. (laughs) The, The cops looked into that. But he finds out that Peter Tobin the serial killer who's, like, one of Britain's no, most notorious serial killer killers, serial killers worked for an auto auction company and was driving cars around. Yeah. It might have been in Beachy Head or whatever it is. And the same so time this girl, um, this where? Place, South think, coast of England, yeah, yeah, somewhere. Of Beautiful. Um, when the, right. Yeah. When this girl disappeared. And so this old Scottish, and what I love mm-hmm. are the Scottish accents. Yeah. And so the old Scottish guy says to him, yeah, he, so he had a car and he was, and I can't do a brogue, and he was, and so then, Peter says, so are you saying he had a car and he could have been in the same area? And the guy's like, yeah, he had a car and he was in the same area. So we're learning he had a car and he was in the same area. And then uh, a few minutes later, he he does that kind of torture. They do this more on British shows where he's talking kind of to the camera, but looking a little off like he's talking to somebody right next to the camera. And it's, it's very tortured. So I've learned now. That he had a car, and he was in the same area at the time <laughs> yeah. as, as Louise K disappeared. And, uh, and so he,
0: he just repeats the same oh, information yeah. over and over and over and over. <laughs> Part of it is that, as I'm sure in the original show, there there were probably commercial breaks. Yeah. But even with that... Even with that, no, because he's repeating it like somebody will tell him something, and he'll
1: repeat what the person said, <laughs> yes. and, then yes. again, yes. and then he'll say it again, and then he'll say so it again, much. and then he'll say it again. And it's just constant. So that's a big minus one there. Beating the drum... He, not really, not in the sense that we do it, but he does use a lot of that kind of semi-hysterical, these young girls were just going off for a night of drinks with their Depravity friends. And, and debauchery. Uh, yes. So I'm sorry I didn't write down... My point takeaways, but it's at least
0: um, five. so, that so It's a, like a five. And I want to say about that. With that. Too, and I don't remember much about the first season. I had never it. heard a small camper being called a caravanette, but I heard they have different names for things over there. I know they call. I've heard them called caravan caravans, but this never is heard like, a this caravanette. Like, well, it's like a micro. I understand that, but I'm saying I heard that word caravanette about fifty million times in that episode. Right. Every single person would be like, well, the caravanette was here, and then the caravanette, and they could never call it like the, b- anything the van, out of the van. It right. was always the caravanette. The caravanette.
1: And do you recognize this caravanette? <laughs> yes, that's the caravanette. I was right. So this guy, 40 years before, was driving behind a caravanette that he thought was a VW, but it was a Toyota. And it had the same, some of the similarities to his father's license plate. So he remembered the vehicle. But But obviously, he was interviewed by the police at that time. And that's why he remembers. But again, nobody says, and then... Peter shows him a photo. Could this have been the caravanet? <laughs> yes, that is the caravanet. Even though he was behind it in the rain and only saw the rear of it Like was, forty
2: years ago. Yeah. So, but I did
1: watch the I, whole I did. I thing. It. It's very, and I like the Scottish groves very I much. I it. like, I it like listening soft. to. The, I like the way they say we. You know, a, a wee, they were just having a wee yeah, drink. Yeah, they were having a wee drink. No, yeah, you know, stuff like that. Stuff.
0: Okay. So, so what's
1: yours, Becky? Oh, what about oh, what's Liz? The total? What's well, because we're going, it was five. Oh, five. They got, a, yeah. I think, a five. Around a round of five because I wasn't keeping it from. Okay. Right. Liz goes last because she presented. All right. So I am doing a podcast. Um, I'm gonna
0: yeah, do, we're all doing a podcast. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 Um, my podcast, I'm actually doing the overall podcast because season two only has three. Unfortunately, there's only three episodes out so far. I'm doing Slow Burn. Oh yeah. I'm Have you listened oh, I've to heard that? Of it? Yeah. Oh my God. You should listen it's to it. It's very good. The first season is about. Watergate. Watergate. The second season is now only three episodes in at the time of our recording, and is about the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and it's excellent. I'm going to talk about them both um, as I go down the list. Bad reenactments. No. No. Because there's no reenactments. Narrative cliches. I'm going to take off half a point. When I first went through our list to myself, it was a perfect score, and I'm like, nah. Narrative cliches, what I'm going to take a half a point off is... The narrator of both of these seasons is a young man. He's probably early 30s. Leon Nafok. But it's put on by Slate, which is also an online magazine. I'm taking away half a point because he does that thing that bugs the crap out of me where, well, I didn't know this, and I had never heard of this. And it's like, you know what? I don't fucking give a shit whether you heard of it or not. <laughs> like with the Monica Lewinsky, well, I didn't really know much about her, who she was. It's like, that's because you're friggin' 30, but a lot of us do know all about it. <laughs> so it I just seems unnecessary. So I'm taking half a point off that. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a narrative cliche or not, but... That's what I'm saying. Lack of good visuals, obviously not. It doesn't matter. Uh, But they do have some good audio clips. Missing pieces? So far, no. I'll go into it with more with the storytelling because the um, Watergate one focused on things that weren't stuff that we already knew. And so you could technically say there were missing pieces because you didn't know what the Whole overall story was but that wasn't the point of that season so inaccuracy anachronism no it's very very well researched storytelling is excellent especially the first season the first season of slow burn is about the watergate scandal but it focuses on storylines and people that were not major to the story but it's still a very just, it adds it adds so yeah right. he does tell the story of Watergate along with telling these people's stories but he really focuses on like well Martha Mitchell Martha Mitchell who if you're around then yeah. you knew. they her basically then. held her prisoner so yeah. she wouldn't talk that couple a that
1: were that couple of young lawyers yes who, who
0: were and it just it's just really good right. freshness yes especially season one because although we all a certain age knows about Watergate like I said he talked about things with the um the Lewinsky's story, too, is very fresh because even though a lot of us of our generation and older obviously know a lot about the story, it hasn't really been in this depth. Since right. back then. And even back then things were not explained. It's, no. He's explaining them. Repetition, no. Beating the drum, no, he doesn't beat a drum. He's very good about just presenting the facts. He does kind of he, he does have opinions. Linda Tripp is um he obviously thinks she's a villain. And she yeah, she was. <laughs> yeah. So with the Lewinsky one is so far excellent. Yes. He explains yes. the Whitewater scandal really well. Because I cause finally the news never explained it very well. And the whole and he's explaining what he's doing is in the beginning he's talks about Monica Lewinsky and it really even at the time I had sympathy for the poor young woman she was treated like shit yep She still has been, even women, there were certain women who were supposedly, I don't want to say Gloria Steinem because I don't know if she was one of them, but that ilk that are the, kind of feminists. The older yeah, feminists, yeah, yeah. but still put her in the trash can yeah. and were derisive of her. The FBI grabbed her. She was in a hotel room for 11 hours being interrogated yeah. without a lawyer. They told her, well, she could have left, but she's a 24-year-old young woman. And she called her mother, and her mother came from New York, came on the train. Her mother should have told her to get a friggin' lawyer yes. too and didn't. To her credit, she would not say anything about Clinton, and she would not agree to wearing a wire. She tried to <laughs> contact Betty Curry who was Clinton's secretary, so he would be, cause he was being deposed the next day, oh. and she knew he was gonna say they weren't having an affair. But Linda Tripp had these tapes. And new. So far... Am I, is, am
2: I right to revile the very name of Linda yeah. yeah. She um, seemed like the worst conniving.
0: And I kind of can understand if she felt like, well, the president's doing something wrong. You know, so far, it's been... And even also, though I know the story, it's still like, wow. It,
1: it also had one of the best explanations of what happened with Vince Foster, who if you listen to some people, the certain political ill Hillary Clinton murdered. The way he explains everything that happened around that is just so enlightening.
0: So I'm looking forward to episode four because it's going to talk I'm about how Monica for. and Bill met. I think, in a way, both of these scandals seem almost quaint compared to what's going on now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and the fact that I'm not and I'm not diminishing. I think Bill Clinton was a serial philanderer and was inappropriately pursuing women although i don't know like the one thing that i thought was interesting was with paula jones she said when she told her story to the washington post reporter who they interviewed and this guy interviews everybody in it and they are i mean it's amazing the amount of information he has to back up this podcast but the washington post reporter said that paula jones Bill Clinton wanted to give him a blowjob, basically. She said no. And he said, well, I don't want to make you do anything you don't want to do. And so she said, oh, that's probably what going to get him off that he said that or something like that. So the fact that he did say that, at least is a little bit to his credit, but I still think he has a sleazebag. I, I liked him as a president. And he's a person, you know, he's got, you know, he, different aspects. He wasn't different impeached aspects.
1: for his philandering. He was impeached. Supposedly. supposedly, for lying to a but grand they him about whether lying. he had an affair,
0: but it's not I illegal. Was, I think he
2: was really impeached because he was a Democrat.
0: That's what I was getting <coughs> Yeah. At. But they trapped him into lying, yes. which sounds stupid. Like this guy, I, <laughs> this guy I used to work with who was a security guard at night said, oh, I was set up because someone told his boss, hey, that guy's sleeping on the job and his boss went and so saw him sleeping. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's not really being set up. You're being caught. So yes, yeah. but so I gave it to nine and a half. I agree with that, yeah. and I will. I, love it. I will highly recommend it. Yeah, the Watergate one. I think anybody should listen to, and I think
2: you know history classes should yes, have kids definitely. listen to it. So I next, Liz. So I'm going to read a famous, I guess you call it a lead to a news story that may bring up memories for some people, um, and then I'll just talk a little bit how this is uh, related to what I'm uh, reviewing. So this is a news. You know, you're kind of raising the bar for
1: our reviews a little higher. Oh, I'm sorry. No, um,
2: right. Well, it's just so grippy. No, go know? on. No, and no, and, no, and no, most, of, and most in case you, and many people. Negative no, I she, she actually oh. has
1: notes. Um, the uh,
2: yeah. Oh, I have notes. Yeah. Sometimes I have notes. This may strike a bell um, with many people, even people who are much too young, because this appeared in the New York Times in March of 1964. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watch a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in kew gardens twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off each time he returned sought her out and stabbed her again not one person telephoned the police during the assault one witness witness called after the woman was dead of that story was about the case of the murder of Kitty Genovese. Uh, I should say Genovese, all the people in the documentary I watched. You know, the Italian yes. way is Genovese. Yes. I've always said it Genovese, but it's actually Genovese. It's everyone's York. American. Yeah, They're italian it. americans This case kind of just struck a bell on this vision of the apathetic, indifferent, particularly big city, the kind of the cruel, indifferent big city and the apathetic people who would watch, uh, a woman get brutally murdered in their own neighborhood over the course of half an hour. Um, just kind of, you know, had this incredible response. And it became kind of this iconic case that has been the basis of sociological studies. There yeah. are even theories Learn called, um, observer. Syndrome. What is it called? Something like observer syndrome or, you know, there are all these psychology theories about it. And so that's why even people who are really young maybe come across this in textbooks. It's been used as a kind of, uh, morality towel in a way a modern morality towel and this documentary is called the witness it came out a couple of years ago it's won a lot of awards it got critical acclaim deservedly so i think and um you can get it you can stream it on pretty much i streamed it's it it's on, it's on netflix it's on itunes it's a cheap rental you know it's not like expensive to rent oh it's readily available And it was James D. Solomon, who is apparently a screenwriter. I'm not sure what he wrote, but he's a screenwriter, and this is his first movie that he directed. And it really focuses on the younger brother of Kitty Genovese, Bill Genovese. And it's sort of his search for what really happened. And so I'll go over the criteria and kind of fill in just a little bit. negative, Um, So the whole premise is that he's looking at that vision of the crime that killed his sister and the account it you know basically starts with the systematically going through that account of the murder that appeared in the new york times and basically finds that most of that account that description is either false or wildly exaggerated the whole scenario played out quite differently and he's Obsessed, And in the movie is as much about his own obsession with the crime that killed his sister, how it devastated his family and kind of coming to some sort of peace and trying to kind of go back over it. It happens over many years. So bad reenactments. Um, there's n- aren't really any reenactments in wow, this. Wow, that's good. There is, however, one scene towards the end where it's sort of uh reenactment Um and I'm not going to get into the details of it. He basically hires an actress to kind of walk through the thing that happened right in the same neighborhood and he kind of says I think he, he's basically in the film saying I want to do this to sort of see who could have really heard her screaming and everything I think it's more for his own Like, psychologically, like, he has to somehow go through the murder with his sister or something, and it's quite harrowing. There's nothing graphic about it or anything, but it is harrowing to watch and see because he's sitting there, and um, while it's going on, but there aren't reenactments in the sense that it would usually have in these true crime, you know, yes. so it's not really relevant. And I think this is a kind of climax of the film and people can kind of think what they will of it. Some people found it very disturbing. I thought it kind of fit with what he was doing. Narrative cliches. No. In fact, the whole film is premised on kind of dispelling all yes. kinds of cliches. And truisms and the whole kind of idea, you know, this kind of trope of the apathetic big city, and you know, and where no one gives a shit about anybody, and it's very questioning in its approach. Part of what you start to realize is that original account kind of people responded to it because it did kind of offer this kind of kind of trite kind of morality tale, you know, like oh, indifference leads to evil or something in it, and it kind of made sense to people it made people feel uh, like
0: they were better than yeah I think it, yeah I think it kind top. of gave
2: people a sense of moral superiority yeah. you know so it totally avoids that kind of thing racial and gender obtuseness no the killer uh, Winston Mosley uh, was a black and Kitty was white Bill Genevieve talks a lot about the fact though that this guy uh, two weeks before he killed Kitty brutally murdered a black woman in a somewhat different way But I think by the way um, Mosley was diagnosed as being a necrophile he actually liked to have like, try to rape or have sex with women who are almost dead, dying or dead, you know, and it's really Ugh. horrible. He was oh really horrible, horrible and one of the things that is interesting though that comes up and that had been i think revealed before, but is he is very matter of effective is that his sister, Kitty, was a lesbian, now his family didn't know about it, you know, so is this is nineteen sixty four And the roommate that she was living with was really her lover. Mm -hmm. It seems like the bar where Kitty worked, everyone knew. Or at least some claimed they did, some claimed they didn't. But they seemed like they were all pretty cool about it. The family didn't know. And whenever Bill learned that he doesn't really say in the film. He was
1: much younger than her, right? He was 16 he was, and yeah. she was 26. Yeah. She was out yeah.
0: of
2: the house. Yeah. So, yeah. So, or she was maybe even a little older. She, she was, was older at least than 10 it. to she 12 was like years 28. older. Yeah. I think she may have been the oldest one in yeah. the family. Yeah. Um, and he has two other brothers. One's younger than him and one's older than him. And so what's interesting is he's very matter of fact about the fact that Kitty was a lesbian, but there is this kind of, he interviews that former roommate and She talks about, like, he does say, like, Kitty used to bring this girl to New Canaan, where my family lived, and we never saw her after, uh, I believe, she came to the funeral. I can't even remember now if she did go to the funeral or not. She basically kind of says, you know, your family treated me like shit after Kitty died. And he's like, yeah, he really did. You know, yeah. and I'm really sorry. And so I would say, actually, there's a sensitivity about about it. But it's not like he doesn't like, you know, again, you know, like you're saying, beat the drum or anything. Right. It's just, it's kind of interesting factor. And it's part of who Kitty was that he thinks should be talked about now as just something that was part of who she was as a person. Lack of good visuals. I think this film does a very good job. There's a lot of good there's crime scene photos, very effectively deployed, though there isn't anything that shows her graphically, her body, but there's things like blood stains on the wall in the foyer mm. where the last part of the attack took place, the blood on the floor. There's a lot in really interesting photographs and even old film of that neighborhood um, and then new film of him going to all these neighbors and going to the various apartments where people mm-hmm. who saw part of the crime or some of the crime or um, and interviewing people and everything all around that area, and the, it looks virtually unchanged, yeah. which is mm-hmm. one of the things I that's know. really that's interesting. interesting. And he, in a sense, kind of walks slowly throughout the film, and it's kind of walking through the crime, and you're right there in that neighborhood, lots and lots of old photographs and home movies of kitty which is great her name was catherine by the way and which is great because she slowly over the course of film becomes like this real person and that's one of the things that throughout the film that he says is he he says when after she died it she became totally defined he said in american society like she was just defined by her death Mm -hmm. she became this just symbol he said in my family he said we couldn't talk about her death and he said, we didn't talk about her at all. The young, He interviews his younger nieces and nephews who are like in their 20s. And they're like, the only thing we know is that it's, you know, and like one girl says, I came upon her in my sociology textbook, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and we don't know anything about her except she was killed horribly. So part of the film that's kind of uplifting, even though it's such a horrible crime, is that you kind of get to know. He feels like he's kind of bringing his sister a lot back alive in a way. So... The visuals are great, I think, and very, very effectively employed. missing pieces there aren't any major ones here, and when I first did this i didn't take anything off, though, as I was thinking as you guys were giving your reviews. The one thing that isn't quite clear is how did he come up to do this kind of quest? Why did he decide to because his brothers are really against it, and it's mm. very painful for them, and you just see it's so heartrending the family conversations, there's this one dinner where he's kind of talking about his latest yeah. discovery, oh, yeah, yeah. and what yes. the older brother is just kind of going like this, the younger brother, could dissolves in tears, and basically just begs him, yeah. just begs him, like, please, stop. I can't, I can't take it anymore, it's yeah. just horrible.
1: And, and they seem as concerned about him. Yeah,
2: yeah, you can tell his family, his children, right. like, they're concerned that he's just way overboard, and he was the, probably the closest to her of the siblings, but I think Think I suspect that one they do mention it in 2004. To give the New York Times credit, you know, because there was kind of this Abe Rosenthal, Rosenthal, who's the editor at the time of the original article, Mm -hmm. who apparently even wrote that lead. It Mm -hmm. wasn't the it wasn't the reporter. It was Abe Rosenthal. Uh He's the one who kind of, and then he wrote this book. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I remember reading this New York Times article. It was really incredible. Where the New York Times article went back and basically it kind of began to deconstruct that old yes. story yes. and say, This is what really happened. This was really not accurate, and but isn't really made clear. So I don't know if I should take off maybe a half a point you, for that. It's up to um, you. I think maybe I will just because I think that is a real question yeah. I have. Like, mm-hmm. why, what brought him into this obsessive yeah. multi year quest? You know, they show him like, Working on the bulletin board in 2006, the movie doesn't, you know, isn't still being filmed in, like, 2014, you know. So the anachronisms, anachronisms, inaccuracies, I don't know, see, or hear of any. Sorry. Storytelling, I think there's a really good, well-constructed arc of this documentary that it, the way it kind of walks you through his process and, and all the different people he interviews and, and where the one of the last interviews is with a woman who in fact was with Kitty when she died, a neighbor mm-hmm. who actually rushed to help yeah. her, and it's very, very moving and everything. He tries even to talk to Mosley, who at that point was mm. still alive, in a very kind of strangely non-judgmental way. I know yeah. it's you weird. know it's I weird. mean, and the, and the, you have these prison officials talking to him in this like, victim's advocate saying, like, why do you want to do this? And he said, I want to hear what he has to say about it. I want to know what he was thinking, you know, when he saw my sister in her red car at 3 in the morning at that intersection. And what, And they said, what if he refuses to? He says, well, he said, on one hand, it would be unfortunate. Yeah, I'd really like to hear what he had to say. He said, on the other hand, it would be a huge relief, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, the st- I got off the point. The story arc is very effective. It's really riveting, but it's very reflective. It's not like a... um. You know, it's not like a blood and guts kind of true crime thing. In fact, it's not even so much a true crime thing. It's about his own kind of quest to kind of, you know, freshness. I think it's very fresh. I mean, it's what's ironic is that it's a story we all think we know, right? So, like you were saying with Watergate and everything, to kind of get this new perspective on what has almost become like this huge cliche, cultural cliche is very, very interesting and very fresh. Repetition. No, there are certain things that are brought up. Several times, but so almost like each time there's more. There's a reason, there's yeah. a reason yeah. and it's kind of elucidated further. And there are occasional some of the visuals, some of the films of her are shown more than once. But again, it's yeah. all in the it's it's appropriate and to make a point. Beating the drum, no, and not at all. In fact, in fact, you would think, oh, he's he's gonna be it's gonna be this big thing of like we must have the death penalty because yeah. like Mosley yeah. should be firing you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. or anything. And it's not at all. The biggest thing about it is his obsession with finding out the truth. He is amazingly not judgmental himself, as I said. So he's not, like, pursuing some sort of agenda, or he's not, like, pro or anti-death penalty, for instance. He's not trying to bash the New York Times or huh. the or the media or the police everything. He just sort of wants to find out what really happened. And, and in a sense, just for his own piece of mind. It, it
1: always it astounded me watching that. How a newspaper could get something so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And that that could become this, this bigger than what happened story. And the wrong thing is what became so big. Well,
2: what's interesting too, especially I think it's worth saying in this day and age when good news media, when the news media is being bashed so badly and good journalism is not being valued, is that there is a possibility of going the other way. And one of the things that was part of one of the lessons of this was that the New York Times had a lot of clout. And people didn't question it enough. Mm-hmm. And in fact, apparently the reporter who wrote that story wasn't real happy with the story. But Abe Rosenfall kind of stepped in and took control of it. Yeah. And then reporters for other, like the Herald Tribune, was was right. that one that's no longer around, knew that there were fishy things about the story, and it didn't really pan out. And they had talked to people in the neighborhood who said, "Yeah, well, I well, called people the police." You know, were mad, yeah, yeah, right. and um, yeah, people in the neighborhood they were made to well, look they, like a bunch
0: of animals. Yeah, and they said yeah. they
2: stopped talking because they were like, we're just made to, we're misquoted, we're made to look like, yeah. like horrible people and Bill Genevieve says well why didn't you pursue it and he said it was the New York Times he said back then man I mean you just didn't and Abe Rosenthal he said you just didn't want to cross them you know they were very powerful they had so much clout and he
0: obviously Abe Rosenthal had a, a narrative that he maybe he felt was true uh, yeah. It was compelling. Or maybe he just thought it was a good story. Was, yeah, his good story was better was com- than what yeah. happened. Yeah. yeah.
1: But even nowadays, and um, I don't want to get on the bashing journalism bandwagon, um, but just in my experience, and it, this has always been the case, you know, people complain about the media, you know, like what a Rosenthal did, wanting to, you know, being biased and yeah. all this. The biggest issue with the media, both now and 50-whatever years ago, is laziness. Yeah, yeah. And when one media outlet tells a story, the other ones just keep telling right. that story. And especially now with the internet, it's, it's so easy copy and paste. to yeah. pick up false yeah. information and never ask the source yourself. Right, right. And never get it. And so bad information. I mean, we see this a lot in the stories we do on this, and we see it in our conference. local media that misinformation or poorly reported information just keeps getting repeated over and over. And yeah. you try to find the right information, and all the media outlets are saying it the same yeah, confusing you find way. Yeah,
2: you find. Well, one you, thing that I will say that's kind of missing from this, but I wouldn't count it against it because it's not what the film is about, but it is more what I got into when I read a couple of books about that are fairly recent that deal with all this kind of reexamination of the case. And that is, um, there's a kind of larger social and cultural context that you can see, like, why did this particular take on that story become so popular and so riveting to people? And yeah, it fed into, you know, like, crime was beginning to go up at that time in the United States. You know, there was this, you know, kind of unsettling aspects of the 1960s and this kind of idea that there are all these people just don't give a shit, kind of... Now, I don't want to say appealed to people, but it was kind of what people wanted to believe yes. you know, about at least about the big bad cities. Yeah, you right, know? And yes. so when he interviews Rosenthal, who was still alive when he two thousand six when he interviewed him, Rosenthal's kinda like you he's know, saying what weren't there really I mean, even the numbers aren't quite right. There were uh, really thirty seven partial witnesses and, and Rosenthal kind of thought, Well, you know, it doesn't really matter because it was a great story and it and it so, made yeah. and it made and it and it said something that had to be that needed to be said. Well also you know? and, also yeah.
1: it helped and I'm not saying that this was why Rosenthal did what he did, but this was when white middle-class people were leaving the city. And this certainly helped that narrative and helped build the suburbs. And there was a lot of money to be had by the people who were building the suburbs. And I'm not saying that this was cynically guided towards that, but it benefited a lot of people to scare people with, Money out of cities right, and right. into suburbs. Well, I'd give
2: it 9.5 then because I think yeah. I will take a little off because i really I, it's like not it. quite clear now how I it. Now I want to watch it
1: again. I watched That's it about really a year good. ago. That's really good. It's really good. I highly
2: recommend yeah. it. It's yeah. really riveting. Well, that was a very thank good you. review you. to cap off your oh, very good you. story. Oh, thank, yes. thank, thank you. For, yes. Thanks thank for you. joining yeah. us. I, I really enjoyed doing it. Well, we enjoyed having you. We'll probably see you next year. will let you know if there are any new developments. Any updates? On that or on Kyron. Poor little
1: and we'll be back. You're next, right, Yeah, yes. I'm going to do a local one. A local mm. one, and I guess that's it for okay. tonight, right? And you can find us. Our website is Crime and Stuff Online. You can listen to us anywhere you listen. Right, you can find out anything you need to know on our website, Crime, Crime and stuff, stuff Online. And Online. we're on Twitter and stuff, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. bye. Bye. Thanks for listening.
0: No, it's not. She's an American. (laughs) I had her. Not. Oh my god. Oh my god! Don't cut that out. I will. We have a lot of. Maybe I will. No, cut it out because we have a lot of listeners. I know. i Don't want them to be. Yeah, um, I don't be mad at me.